Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. If you have a Bible, because we, we do have some work to do, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Matthew. We'll start somewhere that probably is going to be incredibly familiar. It's going to be Matthew chapter 5, this epic sermon, probably the greatest sermon ever spoken. Uh, take you all of about 15 minutes to read it, all right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, as you're turning there, we really love your pastors. Uh, Dominic and Jackie are amazing. Uh, we've had the opportunity to connect not only in gatherings, but also several times in real life, right? Real life is important. Meetings are super cool. Relationships live longer than meetings, right? Relationships live longer than meetings. And because God is a family man, relationships are important, right? God is a divine community in himself. He is family, Right? He is our reference point for family. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, we are baptized. For those of you that are considering baptism, baptism is a, it's a spiritual warfare. It's an act of warfare. It's a pledging of allegiance. <laughs> um, but we are baptized into a new experience of family, a divine community, the Trinity, the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit. And now we can demonstrate this new reality of family that we experience in God when he becomes our reference point. Uh, make them one as what? As you and I are one. The Trinity is the reference point for family. Um, and so family is amazing. Um, it's important to the Lord and it's important to us. And we've gotten an opportunity to connect with your pastors in real life. Uh, and they're the real deal. They're the real deal. Um, and, and I say that um, not to um, somehow be incentivized by them to say such things. Uh, actually, I wouldn't do that. Um, but I say that so that the rest of you may know. Um, we've had conversations and seen things, and, and out of their hearts, uh, I've been really encouraged and very provoked. Um, they're the real deal, and we're grateful to be connected to them. Uh, we're thankful to be out here tonight. Uh, and I say we because my wife, my best friend, is able to come this evening. <laughs> uh, along with Stephen and Mark, who is with us. Um, we are grateful. As we get going tonight, um, I really believe the Lord wants to release hunger. Um, there's an unusual sense of God that I have in the room tonight. Um, I really, really sense strongly there's going to be like a sweep, like a sweeping move across the room tonight where the Lord touches our hearts um, to deposit or to awaken hunger on the inside um, that, that brings us to measures of hunger that are unusual to us. They are, they are abnormal. 
Uh, right? I believe that even in the room, there are many of us that were hungry for Jesus, and that's amazing. Uh, but then we also recognize that though we try to steward a consistent flame in our hearts, we try to tend to the fire on the inside. We want to be faithful with the flames, so to speak, of what it is that God is doing. There, there are moments, there are encounters, there are times, there are visitations, there are intersections where God touches something deep on the inside. It's this Psalm 42, this as deep calls unto deep, where he awakens a longing that's abnormal. It's, not, it's abnormal because it's not normal. It's not the normal hunger that I live with. It's not the normal sense of being on fire or going for it or chasing or pursuing or really going after him, but it's abnormal. And he, and he does it by his own mercy and by his own grace. And I believe tonight the Lord, by his spirit, right, we need the power of the Holy Ghost. We need the power of the Holy Ghost to fill not just the meetings. I get it on the day of Pentecost, God filled the room, right? He did fill the room, but he also filled the people, right? And we settle for meeting in rooms where God fills the room, but we leave without God actually filling us. But I believe we need the power of the Holy Ghost. And tonight, I, I, man, I just I feel it like deep in my bones, man, like that God wants to like touch us in the place of our longing. He wants to touch us in the place of our, our hungering, our thirsting, our groaning. He wants to awaken a painful ache on the inside where we don't just communicate a liking of Jesus or communicate with some new language that we've adopted. Well, I love God and he means everything to me. But that the groaning of our life, the ache on the inside would actually move us to set up our entire life to communicate what we've become so perfected in releasing from our lips. I want my life to tell people that I want Jesus more than everything else. I want the way I set my whole life up to preach the message and to communicate to others that he's the one exalted above every other and that he's been enthroned, not just theologically, but practically in my heart. And I've set everything up. I've set everything up, that it would amen what comes off my lips, right? We don't just want language, we want lifestyle, and we want them to be the same. We want them to be the same. We don't want some great chasm where we just say, well, do as I say, but don't follow me around because I don't want you to do as I do, right? We want more than just like catchphrases and memes and new language. And I believe the Spirit tonight wants to touch us deep in the place of our longings, or as we're about to read in Matthew 5, as it's going to tell us, blessed are you, right? Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Lord, would you do what no other can do? Would you touch us in the place of our appetites tonight? We want to hunger and thirst for what you say is righteousness, for what you say is right. Would you touch us in our appetites so that we can long for what we should be longing for, so that we can ache for what we should be aching for, so that we can hunger and thirst not like the rest of the world, Lord, 
because they have things that they're pursuing. They have things that they're hungering after, power and money and fame and influence and prestige and all of the aesthetics, the the lusting of the flesh and the lusting of the eyes and the pride of life. Lord, touch us tonight in the place of our appetites. And I'm asking you, would you disarm all of the power of the influence that has been at work in us to drive us towards other things that are not connected to your purpose for us. Thank you for the outpouring of your spirit. Thank you that we are a brand new creation. Thank you that you have transformed our appetites and that now even as we've gathered here tonight, we can hunger, we can thirst, not like the world, but we can hunger and we can thirst for righteousness. And you said that blessed are those that have the right appetites because when our appetite gets aligned right, that you will fill us so Lord I'm praying would you align appetites and would you wildly fill people tonight align appetites reconfigure what needs to be reconfigured transform what needs to be transformed train what needs to be retrained and fill every single one Lord that hungers and thirsts Um, We trust you, precious Holy Ghost, to do what no one else in the room can do. We look to you, Jesus. Send your fire. It's in your name we pray. In Matthew 5, Jesus is sharing this. This epic message, this sermon, some call it the Sermon on the Mount, others the Constitution of the Kingdom. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I would say it's the destination of the road of discipleship. It is the landing place of the Father's desire. Those that have come to love his Son, he has predestined for all of those that will come to believe to be conformed to the image of his Son. This Romans 8, 29 predestination. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Galatians 5, 2 Peter 1, they all give you the roadway of discipleship. And not just the roadway, but they create the landing place. They tell you where our lives are supposed to arrive. Because we know this to be true, that the world is looking for disciples. If you haven't figured that part out yet, then we're living with our head in a box. right? The world wants disciples. They want a people that have been pulled into the sway. Right? The sway of the wicked one, as 1 John 5.19 would tell us. He says, beloved, we belong to God. And we know this. He says, but those that don't belong to God are actually in the world and under the sway of the wicked one. Paul would have said in Romans 12 verse 2, which we're all super familiar with, do not conform to the pattern of the world. The world has a pattern. And it's because it's created a current. There's a trajectory that's been laid down. There's a desired destination for those who are not born again, who are under the influence of the tyranny of the powers of the air, which is Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, at one point, we all lived our life this way. 
subjected, meaning ruled by, governed over, by a lustful indulgence to the things that we feel we want most. He says the lustful desires of the flesh and of the mind. And he says at one point we all lived in this category. We were prisoners. The way that Paul would put it in simple terms is at one point we were a prisoner of self-pursuit. We had no one to pursue but ourselves and we were satisfied. And we were locked up in a prison of self-satisfaction. Man, if the Holy Ghost does anything, he sets me free from the pursuit of me. And he allows me to see the one that's actually worth living for. The one that's actually worth pursuing. The one that's actually worth giving it all for. Because at one point in my history, I thought that that was me. At one point in my history, everything orbited around my desires. I did everything that was aimed back at my own self-satisfaction. And it didn't matter who was involved, who wasn't involved. It didn't matter who got hurt. It didn't matter who lost or who won. As long as I felt gratified. But Paul says now we're spirit people in Galatians 5. And he says when we live by the spirit, we can walk in the spirit And because we are a spirit people, we live by the spirit and walk in the spirit. And when that is our consequence of being born again, that we no longer have to give in to the lustful cravings of the flesh. Paul is not just talking in a sexual connotation. Too many times we associate lust with sexual activity or perversion, but Paul is actually referencing the lustful cravings of this natural life according to the system of the world. And this is what he says. We all lived as prisoners to the system of the world, to self-satisfaction, because that is the tyranny of the powers of the air. He says that's actually the consequence. The enemy doesn't ask you to choose him. He asks you to choose you. (laughs) And Paul says don't conform to the pattern of the world. Because the world is reducing everything down to the desire of the eye. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, the captivity of the hostility of the rulers of the age. And he says, we all lived as a prisoner to this. But then we have these beautiful words, but God. Being rich in mercy and his tender, loving kindness. He did what no one else could do. When the world looked hopeless, when the category to which we were born could never be changed, because Paul communicated a category. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were rebels. We were hostile to God. We wanted our own way. We wanted to satisfy ourselves. We lived as prisoners of self-satisfaction. And for some of us, we really liked it. But then God did something to change the trajectory that humanity was on. Because humanity was on a trajectory. And this is what Paul is trying to communicate. Because the simple principle is there is a cosmic battle for disciples. The world wants disciples. They want a people that are conformed to their image. 
They want a people that will lust after what they're lusting for. They want a people that'll be pulled into the current. They'll live under the sway. They'll get on the train track and head full steam ahead in the same direction. And the world has launched a discipleship agenda throughout the nations of the earth. And if we have not yet recognized the discipleship effort in our nation, then we are living with our head in a box. We have chosen to bury our head in the sand because our nation has created a current and they are trying to make disciples. And I would suggest that in any area of our life where we are not bringing our lives subject to the influence of God's rule through his spirit and his word, we are being opened up to other discipleship avenues. Um, Even as pastor shared, Right? Some of us look more to Silicon Valley than we do the scriptures on how to handle our finances. Some of us follow Grant Cardone harder than we follow Jesus when it comes to how we should handle our money. Right? And this is just the area of finances. But the world is trying to create disciples, and this is why Jesus says in Matthew 28, I'm alive from the dead. This is verse 19, or starting in 18, 18, 19, and 20. I'm alive from the dead. I have the keys. It's this beautiful Revelation 5-5 when John is weeping in the throne room visitation, this heavenly encounter. Because the search throughout the heavens and the earth and even under the earth was done and there was none found worthy. And John begins to weep. And the angel says, don't weep. Behold, there is one who's worthy. He is the lamb that was slain. He is the root and the descendant of David. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has overcome. We need to understand that Jesus is telling them in Matthew 28, he is alive from the dead. He has overcome. He has conquered sin, death, And the grave, he has routed all of hell and been raised by the power of the Spirit. He is not just resurrected, meaning the first fruits out of the grave, the firstborn from the dead, so that he can have preeminence in all things, but he is ascended on high, he is seated at the right hand, and he is awaiting the moment when his Father will release him for this glorious second coming. And he says, I'm alive from the dead. I have the keys. I'll be with you always. Now go. Right? It's like the Bible verse for every missions conference. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We need to understand that Jesus has done everything that needed to be done in order to reconcile people back to God and back to God's purpose. When he says, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey 
everything that I have taught you. I want a people that are radically conformed to my image. I want a people that will set their whole life up to do life my way, to live life by my value system, to no longer hunger after the world and to lust after the system of the age, to no longer be so anchored materially or financially that they're bogged down and can't actually obey me the way that I desire, but I'm looking for disciples because I'm worthy of a people that are going to fill the nations of the earth that would be willing to give themselves to me and to do life my way. Teach them to obey everything that I commanded you because I've taught you how to do life my way. I've taught you how to set your whole life up in a way that would amen that you belong to me. I've given you all of the instruction necessary and I've not just given you the what, but I'm also going to provide the how. For you shall receive power in that when the Holy Ghost comes upon you and you will be my witnesses is this acts 1 8 you will be a living demonstration you will be my testimony you will be my representatives you will be my ambassadors because I am deserving we want to talk about destiny there is one man that is deserving of his destiny and he actually can live with entitlement because he's entitled to what his father promised him And he prays in John 17, give me this people. This John 17, 24. It's the fuel for his heart fire. Give me this people. I have to have them where I am. They have to be with me. He's crying out for the reward of his suffering. And he understands that he is going to lay all of the groundwork that is going to re-engage all of the tracks to reconcile his father's desires so that his father can give him everything that he promised him. If there's one thing that we can take to the bank, it's this. Jesus gets everything he asks his father for. <laughs> and he says, I have overcome. Now go. I have conquered, it is finished, John 19, 30. It is finished. Everything that you and we wanted, I have made a way. Everything that you have promised me, I have done what needed to be done so that we can have what it is that we said we must have. And he's worthy of this people. And in this hour, God is raising up a wild people. He's raising up a people that will be filled with hunger that's not created or generated by the things of this world. He's raising up a people whose whole focus and life mission will be to live for the smile of Jesus over their life of obedience. He's raising up a people that he's actually using in order to ready the earth and all of creation for his second soon coming. He's raising up a company, a family, a tribe of wild, on fire, sold out, 
take the world, give me Jesus, no second thoughts, you can't buy me, you can't bargain me, keep your gifts, keep your honorariums, keep all of your politics, keep all of your power, keep all of your leverage, I have found what I want, he's the dream of my heart, I'll live for nothing else, he's coming with his reward, my reward is not in this world, he's going to return, we will live forever, it will be glorious in eternity, and everything that he said he is going to get. And God is raising up a hungry company, a people that will hunger and thirst after the right things, not just the people that are religious and they're worldly. Not just the people that are still in love with the world, but we've adopted certain religious behaviors. We've got an adoption of certain religious language, but at the root issue, at a heart level, like in my guts, I'm still infatuated with the world. In my guts, I'm still enticed by the world. In my guts, I'm still deeply satisfied by the system of the age. But though I know how to say the right thing, If I had to be honest, I'm not actually hungering for the right things. But God has made a way. And I think that it's important that we understand that being filled with the Spirit is actually the game changer. I'm not talking about some charismania, like nonsense, like circus Christianity. I'm talking about God getting on the inside and on a default level, completely radically transforming me from the person that I used to be. I'm talking about the grace of God. I am what I am and what I am is only possible because God has done what God did. Because the wages of sin is death. That Romans 6.23. I think we have to, at some point, contemplate what the enemy was actually after when he invited or enticed Eve to take of the tree. I think because we don't really take time to investigate, right? Sometimes you just have to linger. Right, like the wheels fall off the bus, I'm parked. I'm not going nowhere. I'm not trying to move on to the next thing. Right, I I get it like our Insta age, right? We constantly want to scroll and look at something new. I'm not moving on to the next thing. I'm camped out right here. Right, it's me and Jesus, and I'm staring deeply, and I'm looking long. This is where I want to be, in your house, gazing in your face, forever beholding your beauty. But I think at some point we have to investigate what it is that the enemy was actually after when he enticed or persuaded Eve to eat of the tree. Right? If you're familiar with the story, then you realize in Genesis chapter 3, there's a whole lot happening. But one of the things that is happening is the enemy comes to Eve, right? We realize that there was an adversary. There was an enemy. There was the Satan in the garden. And he comes to Eve and he seems to present to her. Something that God promised, yet with a twist. He takes something that they recognized God had already said to them and twisted it to where they would pursue it their way rather than God's way. 
right? Again, the one who is the most self-inflated, egotistical maniac. The one who is bound by self-pursuit. I'm talking about the enemy himself. In Isaiah 14, 14, he is the one who is the self-exalted one. You got to be careful with self-promotion. He is the only one in the scriptures referenced as the self-promoting, self-exalted one. He says, I will make a name for myself and exalt my throne above the God of the heavens and I will rule. So the the, the self-exalted, self-promoting one, right? Because again, he's not asking you to choose him. He's asking you to choose you, which in essence is choosing his way and then conforms you to his image where you choose you rather than choosing Jesus. (laughs) He believes Jesus is real too, by the way. He just won't yield his life to him. He'd rather have him than have Jesus, right? Hey, do you believe Jesus is real? That's not enough, bro. that's, That's not getting the job done. Um, The enemy believes Jesus is real. He just won't yield to him. He just won't surrender to him. And he approaches Eve in the garden. And he says, you know, is is that really what God said? And he says, that's because God knows that in the day that you eat of that tree, you're going to become like him. And it says that Eve took a second look. Right? There's something about being influenced by the enemy's voice that causes us to look with a lens at things that God has said in a way that is now fueled by self-pursuit and self-satisfaction and the rule of self rather than the rule of Jesus. And she looks again. And what does the Bible say? Right? This, is, this is Genesis 3, 5, 6. In verse 6 it says, When she saw that the tree was good for eating, And she saw that it was pleasurable for food. And she felt that it was delightful or pleasant, leading to wisdom. She went and took of it. Let me encourage you because John gives us a beautiful exhortation that the world and all of its ways are going to pass. Those who are anchored into the world system All of the kingdoms of this world are going to be judged. Jesus will come back. He will rule forever geopolitically, meaning he will set his throne up in a real physical location. He will step off the cloud onto Mount Zion. He will establish a throne and rule creation from Jerusalem as the rightful heir to the throne of David. And the world and all of its system is going to be judged and it's going to fade. And in 1 John 2, John tells us, Beloved, don't love the world or its ways. Because if you do, then the love of the Father is not in you. Because we understand that love is not careless. It's not wild. It's not a free-for-all. But love has an agenda. The love of God is trying to put a harness on you to evict the love of the world out of you and to keep you consistently living your life by Jesus' value system, which is the way that we abide, by the way. My words in you, then you can abide. It is the way that we abide. But he says, don't love the world in its ways. He says, because it's all going to get judged. It's all passing. And what are the things that he references? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All three are in Genesis 3.6.
when she saw that the fruit was good for eating, lust of the eyes. And she felt or saw that it was pleasurable for food, lust of the flesh. And when she found that it was delightful unto wisdom, pride of life, all three are found in the garden experience. And there's now a consequence that's fallen on all of humanity, Adam being a version of humanity. We learned that in Romans 5. Because Paul says in Romans 5, if one man sinned and an inheritance fell on all creation, and that was the penalty because there is a consequence for wrong choices. We can choose our choices, but we don't choose our consequences. And so the consequence of sin the consequence of compromise in the garden put an inheritance on all of humanity. And now we are born into sin, as the Bible would tell us. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, if that Adam being the first version of humanity, he then references with the last Adam. Because Jesus is the last Adam, and the reason he's the last Adam is because there never needs to be another version of human. Jesus is now the perfect pattern for what a man filled with God is supposed to look like as a human lives his life in dependency on God's spirit. And he says, if this last Adam has overcome, then how much greater now? the inheritance for those that come to believe? How much greater now the consequence of what will fall on or get in all of those that choose to turn, that choose to repent, that choose to believe? How much greater is grace than the darkness? But because we most times, we, man, we just, we trivialize we minimize sin like it's not a big deal, right? Like we can flirt with sin. We can date devils, right? Because we're just, we're just doing our thing. We're just having fun. I'm in control of the conversation. It's cool. Like I can do what I want over here and do what I want over here and still come to church because I still worship and sing songs and pray and give in offerings. And, you know, it's cool because I'm trying to kind of do me and have both sides. I think we need to understand that the enemy was not just trying to entertain them or satisfy them for a moment, but that there was something much bigger that was at work here. You see, God created a system of sorts. He, he has bound himself to his own standards, right? This is important in a fundamental way to understand who God is and how he operates, right? The psalmist would write it this way. I've exalted my word above my own name. God has bound himself to his own standards, meaning he will not compromise who he is even at times when he wants to get something done. He will not compromise who he is in order to satisfy a desire that he has. He will not bend or break his own standards, his own rules, his own systems, his own judgments. Why? Because he knows that what he knows and the way that he has set things up is what's right. It is what's best. And so he understands that he is right. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm not just any way or a way. I am the only way that is actually right. I am the only way that leads to life. And so God understands 
that he's right. This isn't even debatable. He understands that he is right. His judgments are beautiful. His righteousness is holy. He is glorious. He is other than. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are so much higher than your thoughts. And the enemy felt that he had some sort of power play. After studying God, I know that he's holy. I know that he's righteous. I know that he's just. I know that he won't compromise his own standards. I know that he won't bend the rules. And I know that he has a plan for humanity. I know that he's fashioning a bride for the son that he loves. I know that he has a plan. It's a will. It's a purpose. It's his own desire. It's the fuel for this heart fire. I must have this people. And I know that the enemy surveying the situation realizes that God has an ultimate objective for why humans were created. And it's to stand alongside of his son in the place of eternity. And to rule over and to help steward creation, which was the original goal, by the way, right? Through intimate fellowship, I will share my authority with you. Now take dominion and bring the earth subject to my rule and my ways, right? That, that was the original goal, right? The Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. I will fashion a suitable helper for him, a comparable companion for him, right? The son of man, it's not good for him to be alone. And the father is readying a bride for the son that he loves. I like to say it this way. Adam got his bride and Jesus is still waiting for his. But we understand that the enemy also realized this plan that God had for humanity. And he felt that he had a way in order to throw a monkey wrench into the whole setup. If I get them to sin, then God will have to derail his plans for them. Because the penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Paul tells us, again, Romans 6.23. And if the wages of sin is death... Because death was never an original part of the plan, right? We realize that. They were to live forever. They were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to scatter themselves across creation, harvesting through childbearing more image bearers that would love the Lord, do life his way, and bring the whole creation subject to his value system or his righteousness, right? We, we get that. So death was never an original part of the plan. So death entering into the scenario is a serious problem. And because they choose to compromise, again, the enemy wasn't looking to just satisfy them for a moment. The enemy wasn't looking to just entertain them or to let them get a little something of what they thought they wanted. No, there's much more at work here. The enemy wanted to derail their destiny in God. The enemy wanted to sever them from the dream, from the desire that filled God's heart, that moved him to create and moved him in order to put everything that we know as it is into motion. And the enemy who hates God and hates his ways, by the way, right? Why do the nations rage? Against God, against the choice of his son and those that love him. And the enemy hating everything about God. 
finally thought he had a way. If I get them to sin, then God will have to call an audible. He'll have to change his plans. He'll have to start over. And in a sort of style, if we could consider maybe like a chess match, the enemy thought that he finally had made the perfect move in order to out all of God's plan for humanity and for creation. Because man would never be able to come up with a solution to satisfy God's system and the way that sin now had an accusation and a demand. But that's because the enemy never considered God becoming a man himself. No man would ever be able to satisfy the wages of sin. No man would ever be able to live a life without blemish, holy, perfect, beautiful, spotless. The sacrificial lamb would be necessary because there would never ever be a man or a woman as long as time would exist that would live in such a way that would satisfy all of God's judgments. And so you can almost see it from the perspective of the enemy. I've got you. I've done it. I've trapped you. I've ruined all of your plans for them. I know that I am one day going to be eternally judged, but I'm going to bring as many of them with me as I can. I'm going to derail them and sever them. I'm going to see that they are cut off from the dream that you have for humanity and all of this creation that you've made. I've got you. I've made the perfect move. The masterful plan is in motion and there's nothing you can do about it. I have pinned men into a corner. But that's because he never actually thought that God would humble himself. That this infinite, all-powerful God, right? How does John Piper say it? That the infinite would become an infant. He never once in a million years considered that God would be humble enough in order to enter into the human story, not just as something materially better than us, but to come as one of us, to live among us, to die on behalf of us, to be raised for all of us, and now to become the pattern for the rest of us that would ever choose to repent and put our faith in the one that is the way, that is the truth, and that is the life. And the enemy never saw it coming that God would choose to become a man. That he would limit himself and humble himself to come into the human story, but not just into the story, but in a human vehicle. And God came into the human story in a human vehicle because he knows he's right. <laughs> Let, let me explain. God knows that the wages of sin is a judgment that he himself has established. He knows that the penalty of death for the consequences of sin is something that is right because he is the one that has established the system. 
He's the one that has set up all of the standards. He's the one that's created all of the ways. And because he knows he's right, he believes so much so that he is right. Rather than bending the rules, rather than calling an audible, rather than compromising his own ways or judgments or standards, he would rather make himself subject to his own standards and lay his own life down in his own system then compromise it and become like the ones that are coming against him. It's one thing to argue your point and to believe that you are right. But God said, I know that I am right and that I am going to make things right by doing what is right. I will enter into my own system. I will yield my life and surrender to all of my rebels and accusers and critics. And this is what he calls wisdom, by the way. Had the rulers of the age known what they were doing, when they nailed Jesus to the cross, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory because God was operating by a wisdom that is counter to the world's system because the world is not lusting after humility. The world is not hungering after brokenness. The world is not thirsting after weakness and surrender, even unto laying down our own lives because we know we're right. (laughs) And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, not loving their own lives, even when confronted with death itself. And God says, I understand that my system is right. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to do what none of you could ever do. I'm going to live the life that none of you are ever going to be able to live. I'm going to come and I'm going to walk among you as one of you. I will humble myself. I will come as a man. The all-powerful will limit himself to crawling and babbling. The all-powerful will have to have someone raise him and nurse him. The all-powerful will have to have someone teach him how to talk. Who is this king of glory? What are we talking about? He says, because I know I'm right. I know I'm right. And I'm not going to let the enemy make a mockery of my plans. Because my plan for humanity is going to remain. My desire for a family is going to stay intact. All of the purpose and all of the will that moved me to create and to do everything as we know it is going to stay on the trajectory as it was originally intended. And God comes as a man and he chooses to lay his own life down. And he lays there in the grave after being mocked, after being criticized, after being spit on and beat, he lays there patiently because he knows that the spirit will come. (laughs) For you will not abandon your holy one to the grave. You will not let him see decay. And we know that it pleased God to put the fullness of all that he is in the man Jesus as a human on the earth. And that Jesus as a man, the God man, the man Jesus, filled with the spirit, 
laid his life down and went into the grave. We know because we too bear witness that as we house God's spirit, that even if one day we have to face the grave, that the same way that the father was faithful to come get the son and to raise him up by the power of his own spirit, that we too, that we too are going to be raised. This is our promise, beloved that we too are going to be raised. We will be alive from the dead. And Jesus is alive from the dead and he knows that he has to send the spirit because it's sending the spirit that is the game changer for humanity. Because God has now made a way to get on the inside. God has now cracked open his own flesh and created a pathway in order for him to not only send the Spirit, but for you and I, through this beautiful born-again experience, to actually turn to Jesus, right? No man comes unless the Father first draws him, and he comes by the Spirit. And so we understand, because of the beautiful work of the Trinity in our born-again experience, that the desire of the Father to reveal the beauty of His Son is made real in our hearts by His Spirit. And so by the Spirit, when you and I finally catch a glimpse of Jesus, we can now give Him our life. And as we give him our life, as we repent, right? This is kingdom 101, right? If any man comes, let him first deny himself, right? So don't try to get into this like legalistic, right? Like self-denial is legalism. Uh, No, it's kingdom and it's Jesus's invitation and it's the doorway to discipleship. It's where the road starts. If any man comes, he first denies himself. That means my life no longer belongs to me. It belongs to you. You are king. That implies I am not. I'm not living for me anymore. The love of the world, the love of myself, it's all been conquered. I have a brand new life. This new life comes with new appetites. I understand that it's taken me decades in order to be conditioned to train these appetites, how they're supposed to be satisfied, but now I have God's spirit. Now I'm filled with the Holy ghost now I can hunger now I can thirst not for what I used to but now for what God says is righteousness and now I actually have to train I actually have to condition these new appetites how they're supposed to be satisfied and we would actually call that discipleship that's what we would call discipleship the retraining of our appetites the reconditioning of our hungers and our thirsts, where we're no longer hungering and thirsting like the rest of the world, but that's because we are not like the rest of the world anymore. We are in the world, but we are no longer of the world because we have come out of the world through a born-again experience to now be planted in the world to ready the world for the return of Jesus. And this actually takes real work. Because once the spirit gets on the inside, it starts to mess everything up. Oh, being filled with the Holy Ghost is not easy. Oh, it's not easy at all. Not if you're still trying to dabble a little bit here. Not if you're still trying to find satisfaction over here. 
right? Right. Sometimes we are, we're, we're walking with God, but we're also satisfying these hungers with the things of the world, right? This is what Paul says in Philippians 3 as he's quoting and he's talking about those who are enemies of the cross, preaching with selfish ambition. He says they're enemies of the cross, which um, that, that's, that's pretty heavy. But then in verse 19, he says, whose God is their appetites, whose God is their stomachs. And the stomach is not necessarily just something physically, meaning like I'm bound to food and the desire for food, but it's the craving of this natural life. It's the longing of this fleshly man. It's this fleshly tent that at one point was deeply anchored to the system of the world. It was tethered to the influence of the powers of the air. I was living in a self-indulgent way and didn't see anything wrong with it because it was normal. And it was normal because it's what I knew to be natural. And what comes out of our nature is natural. And it's why these things were normal. But we no longer have the same nature when we are born again. It is actually one of the beautiful and powerful realities of housing God's spirit. Being filled with a divine life actually puts to death the work of my old self life is what we learn in Romans 6. He says, beloved, you can't even talk about sin anymore. You've moved out of that house is the way that the passion puts it. You don't live there anymore. So why? Why do you think you can vacation there from time to time whenever you deem it to be necessary? He says, but you are dead to your old man because you are now alive to God. And he has done this by giving you his own life. He has put his spirit on the inside of you. And it should have laid the old man to rest because if any man is in Christ, and that man is a new creation. He is a new creature. You are not just a Christian. You are a brand new version of human. You are a brand new version of humanity. This is the Romans 6 reality. We are a new version of humanity. God now has harvested a family of new creatures for himself. And it's what he is using to scatter throughout the nations of the world as a testimony, as a witness, as a living demonstration, as a sign and a wonder to ready the earth in mercy for the return of his son. And we are a part of this family of new creatures. Hear me. We, we, we are a brand new version of human. You are not what you used to be. God did not just proceed to do a cosmetic job on the old man. This isn't just like painting the walls on a beat up old house. Right? He didn't just lay some new carpet so that it could be a little more comfortable under your feet as you walked through the experience of the old nature and the old life. But God has dispensed of himself power in order to make us born again, which now grants us the access to divine life. 
And in this access to divine life, it comes with a new nature. And this is the reality for those that are born again. We have a new nature. And out of this new nature, there are now certain things that should be natural. Because with the old life, when the old nature is what ruled, when the self-life is what held me captive, when the tyranny to self-satisfaction and self-indulgence is what had me as a prisoner, there were certain things that were natural. They were associated with my fleshly or sinful nature. And so I conditioned my life to satisfy those appetites because it's what was normal to me. But now we have this new life as a born-again new creature. And this new creature life comes with a new nature because God has put himself on the inside of those that belong to him. God has shared himself with us in the most intimate and the most powerful way. And he has beautifully reconfigured everything that is happening on the inside of you. You are inseparable from the work of God's own spirit that is alive on the inside of you if you have given your life to Jesus. You could not cut out God's work and your desires if you wanted to. The two have become one. It's that 1 Corinthians six seventeen. Anyone that has given himself to the Lord, the two have become one. There is now union. There is now harmony. There has been synchronization. And we as a born again people have been reconciled back to God. And being reconciled back to God comes with a new nature. And it comes with new appetites. And it's why it's problematic. It's why it creates issues and, and starts trouble for us. Because there's these longings on the inside that are not connected to my old way of living. And so when I go to my old way of living, trying to satisfy these new hungers and thirsts, there's a disconnect. There's a disruption. What I used to enjoy is no longer satisfying to me. And I understand that sin is pleasurable for a season, but that season has come to an end because God has put himself on the inside of us. And now we have a new nature. And out of this new nature is now the arousal of these appetites. We have these hungers. We have these thirsts. Because we've not only been reconciled to God, but we've also been reconciled to his purpose. And where Adam compromised, Jesus has conquered. For man shall not live by bread alone, is the Matthew 4.4 reality. When Jesus is tested, turn these stones into bread because I know you're hungry. He says, no, no, the first Adam hungered, and that's where he compromised. You see, Jesus is Lord even over the appetite. And if at some point we don't learn how to manage our appetites well, we will end up bringing compromise to things that are ultimate, thinking that we can satisfy these hungers with things that are immediate. Esau did this in Genesis 25, 
29 to 34, what did he tell Jacob? He says, I'm starving. And Jacob says, oh, I see that you're hungry. I see that you're hungry. I've got this nice stew, this bowl of lentils. Let me just tell you something. You've got to be super hungry, right? Like, I'm not saying that you can't, like, make a banging bowl of lentils. That's not what I'm saying. I just haven't come across one yet, right? <laughs> but Jacob says, I see that you're hungry. And Esau says, give me some of that stew, some of that soup. I'm, I'm, I'm famished, right? I'm starving. He's hungering. He's thirsting. His flesh is crying out. It's putting a demand on satisfaction, <laughs> right? Whose God is their appetite. And Jacob says, I'll give you the soup if you give me your birthright. And he says, what is the birthright to me in consideration of how hungry I am? <laughs> What is the birthright to me in consideration of how hungry I am? And he says, will you give it to me? And he says, take it, just give me the stew. And we see a man who compromises what's ultimate for what's immediate. Because he couldn't manage his appetite. He didn't have power to rule over the longings and the cravings that erupt from the inside. This is the reality of what Paul is speaking to, whose God is their appetite. And this is part of the beautiful purpose in a born-again new creature, is that God has issued power in order to put to death old appetites. For if any man be in Christ, that man is now a new creature and the old things have passed and all things have now become new. Let me encourage you, if you're sitting here tonight and you're struggling with appetites that you don't like, don't play the cosmetic cover-up game, right? This is the issue of the Old Testament at large, right? God issues the law in hopes that they would realize the failure, the weakness, the brokenness, and in humility cling to God in dependency, but rather than entering into weakness and brokenness and humility to cling to God in dependency, what does that mean? That means, God, I'm never going to be able to do this. And, and if you don't help me, I don't have any shot. If you don't actually touch me or transform me or do something, I don't want to play the exterior game. I don't just want to prop up all the images. I don't want to live the filtered life. I don't want to do any of these things. I want you to actually do something that's real on the inside. And until you do something that's real on the inside, I know what's going to continue to be real for me. And what's going to continue to be real for me is I don't have power to change what's happening on the inside of me. I don't have power to transform these appetites. I don't have power to actually hunger for something else. I don't have power to reconfigure my thirsts that erupt from the inside of me. And at times I know that it's wrong, but I know that I'm not right. <laughs> and because I realize that I'm not right, I keep doing what I know is wrong. Right? Isn't this the Romans seven tug of war? It's the housing of two natures. 
It's the reality of the old man and the born again life, the new creation. It's the housing of enemies that are hostile towards one another's desires is what Paul is implying. And at times I'm hungering for things that I know are wrong, but I also realize that I'm not right. And I don't have any power to change what's wrong that's happening in me to make it right. Because that's righteousness. Because only God is right. And so even if I perfect the image of the outer man, it'll never be right. Because God's not only looking at the whitewashed walls, he sees the corruption that's perpetuated on the inside. And he rebukes the Pharisees and he says, you are corrupt, you are hollow, you are bankrupt, you are empty. Because rather than clinging to me in dependency, you are refusing the invitation to my humility. You keep trying to paint the outside and you keep trying to add new decorations when I'm looking at what's actually going on in an interior way. And because you keep pretending and you just won't turn to me because you keep trying to fix your life in your own self-righteousness, but you don't actually realize that I've laid down my life so that you could conquer your own self-righteousness and now by the power of my own spirit that is in you and alive in you and working in you to transform you and to conform you into the image of my son, I've given you what's right so that I can make you right if you would stop trying to do it all yourself. Um, But come to me. Come to me. All of you who are weary. All of you that are tired of trying to do it your way. Right? Because the truth of the matter is, there's, there's a lot of times where we're serving. Right? We're, we're, we're trying to serve God's purpose. We're trying to give him our whole life. We're trying to go all in with my whole heart. And I'm trying to do what's right and I'm serving. But there are times where I'm serving and I'm struggling. And the reason that I'm struggling is because at times I am continually sowing into the lie, expecting to reap a harvest of the truth. (laughs) What does that look like? Well, man, I've always struggled with this. Man, this is something that I've just always gone through, right? And then we try to get super spiritual. Well, this is just my thorn in the flesh. Right, and, and Paul had one too, bro, so like back up, you know what I'm saying? Like we're all flesh and we've got this fleshly tent and bro, it's just gonna be what it is like until Jesus comes back and transforms me and until I'm an eternal version, until I'm a glorified human, like I'm always just gonna struggle. Who says? <laughs> is that what your worldly appetite says? Is that what the love of yourself says? Is that what the anchoring in the system of the age says? Is that what the voice of the influence of the powers of the air continually wants to remind you or tell you or invite you? You're always going to be this way. God's never going to give you power to change this. You're never going to be able to get over this hoop. You're never going to be able to get off this roller coaster. You're never going to be able to get out of this revolving door, right? I am believing that God is going to turn revolving doors into closed doors. (laughs) And that the cycles of sin, the cycles of satisfaction with old appetites, the cycles of hungering and thirsting 
and serving and struggling, that God is actually going to touch us in a deep place on the inside of our appetites. And he is going to reconfigure our longings by filling us afresh with his own spirit. Because outside of being filled with the Holy Ghost, we have no shot at long-lasting transformation. Um, Because you can get excited and in an emotional zing or over a zeal of a couple of days, self-discipline yourself. (laughs) But just because you can cover it doesn't mean you have power to conquer it. And this is what Jesus has done. God's move to become a man himself was not to counter the enemy's move to get Eve to sin. God is not playing chess. He is flipping over the whole board and kicking the enemy in the face. He is not making a counter move. He is making a conquer move. And what he has done has destroyed all of the desires that the enemy longs to have lingering over the human situation. And where at one point death was written over our doorpost. Where at one point the accusation of the enemy reigned supreme in the courtroom for justice. Where at one point it was justified because the wages of sin is death. The man Jesus, the last Adam, the prototype, the pattern son, has now issued power for our exodus. He is the Passover lamb and he has become provision for our Passover so that we can come from bondage to freedom. So we can come from death to life. So we can come from the old life, the self life to a new life by divine life where the enemy wanted us to be a prisoner and be a captive for the rest of our life. The deliverer has arose to set the captives free and we all... We all, now by turning to Jesus, by repenting and being born again, I'm not talking about just sitting in a church, right? You can be in church and not be in Christ, right? If any man is in church, then he's a new creature. If any man is in Christ, then that man has become a new creature. And when we become this new version of human and God gives us the nuclear power of his own life to be filled with the Holy Ghost, we can now live as a living demonstration. We can now live as a sign and a wonder. Why are we a sign and a wonder? Because we're not like them anymore. And we're not bound to the same appetites that they are. And we're not prisoners to the same lusts like they are. And we're not taken captive by the same enticements or attractions or addictions like we used to be. But we can now live as a powerful ambassador, as a family of new creatures, a representation of the mercy of God that while this system and this age is passing and will be judged, 
This is God's mercy. Repent and look upon my son. Give your life to him. Come out of the bondage of the world system and I will make you a new creature. I will give you my spirit and make you a new version of human. And now we could say that this family of new creatures is now one of the vehicles that God is issuing his rescue mission through. Because beloved, God is not slow about his promise. For a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, but he has a desire. This is 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. He has a desire that all would repent because he doesn't want anyone to perish. This family of new creatures is God's solution to the sickness of the age. This family of new creation, born again, on fire, wild ones, is God's offering of mercy to the rebels and the rulers of the age. It is God's offering of mercy. It is a sign and a wonder. And it is time for us to follow the call of the gospel and to come out and be separate because worldliness is not relevance you don't have to be like them to reach them <laughs> oh man we think we're doing them favors by doing what they do well I want to love them and I want to love them where they are <laughs> right let me just tell you uh, if you know that you haven't yet received real power in order to completely transform your appetites. Don't go deep sea fishing, right, when you really just want to get pulled off the boat. <laughs> well, it's evangelism, pastor, and I got to go to where they... <laughs> for, for some of us, it'll be later tonight, maybe a day or two, and you'll be like, oh... Oh, man. Yeah, that would have been kind of funny, too, if I'd have gotten it in the moment. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. Tonight, if you're born again, you are God's offering of mercy until his son comes. If you're born again, you are one of the chosen vehicles that God is looking to demonstrate his loving kindness to the peoples of the nations of the earth until he releases his son to come again. Tonight, if you are born again, you have been entrusted with the announcement of the gospel. Tonight, if you are born again, God has given you power to crucify the self-life, to put the old man into the grave, and in any way that we are satisfied with struggling, I believe that tonight God is going to correct the conversation in our heart. You don't always have to be that way. 
That's not always going to be your issue. It's not always going to be some up and down thing. It doesn't matter to me if it's plagued your family line. It doesn't matter to me if you consider it to be a generational curse. It doesn't matter to me if you were raised in a certain environment. It doesn't matter to me if you were trained by a certain people a certain way. None of those things matter because as a born again new creation, we have the power of God's spirit to put to death everything that was wrong and now to hunger and thirst for what God says is actually right. And I'm just convinced that there's going to be a sweep across the room tonight where God's going to touch us in the place of our hunger. Man, I'm telling you, if you've been battling, tonight is the night. Whatever you've been battling with. I'm telling you, if you've been struggling and you've been playing the cover-up game and we've just been trying to do our best, glory to God, like tonight is your night for God to touch you. Tonight is your night for God to fill you afresh. As we opened, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And I just have this wild feeling, man, (laughs) that God wants to pour out his spirit in a fresh way on every hungry heart. You see, because it takes an ounce of hunger. Stephen and I were having a conversation the other day, and I said I recognized my ounce of hunger moment. I've told the story for almost 20 years. There was one night I was walking the streets. I wasn't yet born again. I was bound in addiction. I had been a drug addict for over a decade. I was drug dealing in and out of jail 15 times because of the the perversion that I had given myself to and the way that I was sexually satisfying my life. I'd contracted an STD and I had had herpes for like six years. I say had, that would be a reference to past tense because the blood of Jesus gave me an answer that science doesn't have. Doctors don't know why it's no longer in my bloodstream. They don't know why they said they were going to have to medicate me for the rest of my life, why my wife was going to have it, why my kids were going to have it. They told me it was going to brand my family's story and it would be passed on throughout the ages because medically there was no hope. I understand medically there's no hope, but I'm not looking to medicine for hope. (laughs) And I was walking the street one night, angry, violent, suicidal, broken, living in darkness, I look at photos from the person I used to be and my eyes were black. (laughs) They are light, light brown now. (laughs) I get it. I have, well, I was going to say something, but I understand we live in a a weird uh, racial climate right now. Um, I have squinty eyes. I will say it that way. Some of us will laugh super hard later this week again. (laughs) I have squinty eyes. (laughs) I don't even mean it in a derogatory way, man. That's what this nonsense. It's so weird the moment we're living in. And I was walking the street one night, wasted out of my mind, middle of the night wee hours of the morning 
And with tears running down my face, being persuaded to jump out in front of a vehicle and end my life, I stopped. And I lifted my head. And I said, I don't know if you or who or what is even real. 21 years old, didn't believe in God, wasn't raised in church, had never read the Bible. I didn't have children's church, youth group. Everybody that ever preached to me told me I was going to hell for the way that I lived. I was convinced of it, but I didn't need to end up there one day. I was already living there. And I said, I, I, don't, I, don't, know if, I don't know if you're real. I don't even know if you're a you or a who. But this is what I do know. You're the only shot I have. Because this is all I know how to do. I don't know how to be anything else. I've, I've lived my whole life this way. I don't have power to change. I don't have power to do something different. What I was saying is these hungers and these thirsts, they've taken over my life. And my God being my appetite is now ruling over who it is that I am. And looking up in the sky that night, weeping, maybe for the first time in a conversation with God, I said, I can't do anything else. I can't be anything else. And if you're not real, I'm going to die this way. But if you are real, and you would make yourself real to me, I'll give it all to you. And no real crazy moment, just went on living my life. And weeks after that, had a wild encounter at an altar where Jesus came to me in a vision. But I'm sharing what I'm sharing for the purpose of saying I recognized my moment where I had an ounce of desire, where I wanted to be different. I just didn't know how. Right? Sometimes we adopt the language that we want to be different because it's what we know we're supposed to say. But on a heart level, we don't really want to be different. We just don't want to feel bad anymore. <laughs> right? I, I just don't want to feel bad. If I could do what I was doing and not feel bad about it, but now that I know it's wrong, I can't feel right. <laughs> and not feeling right is the problem. But I recognized the moment where I had an ounce of desire. I didn't have the power, but I had an ounce of desire. I couldn't actually make the transformation happen. But there was, there was a little bit of hunger for something different on the inside. Man, I'm telling you tonight, when he says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it starts with desire. It starts with hunger, and you don't have to have a lot of it because he makes up the difference. He, he, he is strong where you are weak. He is capable where you are incapable, where there seems to be a chasm and there's no bridge. And actually to get to him, you don't have to worry about getting to him. He comes to you. But where there's an ounce 
of hunger, God says, I'll do the rest. Where there's an ounce of desire, God says, I'll come to you. Where there's a little bit of a desire to be something different, God says, I can work with that. And I'm just convinced tonight that God wants to set us free from hungering and thirsting after things that are associated with an old way of living or even the system of the age where we can live wholly free in how we are reconciled to God to now hunger and thirst after his purposes for our life. All of his promises are yes and amen in Christ where we can hunger and thirst for God's promises and his purposes for our life. And the disruption of these appetites and old way of living no longer seek to derail me from the way that I give myself to him. So we're going to do this. I'm going to ask everybody to stand up. Because again, I can't make this happen. But God can. And, and I'm actually believing him to do something extraordinary tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm trusting that by the power of his own spirit as he pours himself out, right? As we're filled afresh, right? Acts 2 filled, Acts 4 filled afresh. Same group of folks. But that as we are filled afresh, that God would bring the needed and the necessary real default level guts, like get in my guts tonight, transformation. Where he would actually change me in the things that I hunger for. This isn't visible to anybody else on the outside, right? Because at times we're battling with things that we don't want to tell others because we feel like it would either um, disqualify us Right, if they really knew the things we were hungering after. And, and I'm not saying that like necessarily always in some weird, like totally negative way. Right? Like, like I have these appetites, I have these hungers, and, and, I'm, and I'm satisfied by it. Right? Sometimes we're dissatisfied. Because there's a divine discontentment. I don't want this anymore. I don't want to battle this way anymore. I don't want to struggle with this anymore. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Right, where we're not trying to like fake it till we make it and pretend like we've really been changed, but where we are actually really changed. And God has really done the work in my guts on a default level to radically reconfigure me to where I can hunger and thirst after righteousness. And it takes a real work of God. It takes a real work of God. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.